and Darren, uh, just kind of about, about, about what it is that we are about as a church, what are our values, what's our vision, and uh, Phil and Darren both encouraged me, how about you preach a, a sermon just kind of restating our goals, restating our vision, restating our values, and so that's what I'm doing this morning, preaching more of a topical sermon, just to put us all on the same page about who we are and uh, where we're going. By the way, in, in our absence, uh, I know that um, you'll be well fed. I kind of wish I'd be here. Um, was talking to Phil, and Phil said, I'm excited for just even other guys who are going to come and fill the pulpit. And I said, Phil, especially the one on July 31st, right? That's when Phil's preaching, so that'll be a wonderful time. But I know our family uh, is going to miss next Sunday night when Lance Menon is here. Um, just a dear friend of us and our families at uh, Mount Morris EV Free Church. Uh, we're, we're especially missing that time. Um, not that we're missing the others, but that one I think particularly. Tonight, Jess Miller's going to come and preach. He's probably the most gifted of all the preachers who are going to come. Uh, just a very gifted man. I love his testimony that he grew up in a church, uh, probably tell us tonight, grew up in a church and yet um, strayed much from God. And yet God was gracious to pull him back to himself. Uh, so it'll be a great time tonight. That's at 6 o'clock if you come. It's going to be a great time. But for us this morning, I'm going to preach a message called Vision and Values. And uh, really it's important for any organization and even a church to have a vision, right? What, what is it that we're striving for? What are we seeking to accomplish? I mean, it's important also we have our values. How is it that we're going to accomplish our mission? It's kind of how those two things fit. It's true of business, clubs, sports team, and churches that we need to have those kind of statements just to know what it is that we are about and so I just even want to cause you to think, why do we as a church exist? What are, what are we seeking to accomplish? What's our purpose? What's our, our function? Well, certainly it, we are here for God. The church is important to God. Jesus Christ Himself said, I will build my church. And He has been doing that for some 2,000 years. So it's, it's, we're here for God. But we're also here for us. There's a measure where we come to church for our own edification, for our own good, for our own help. Also, we're here also for others. We're here to serve, to serve this world, to serve non-believers, to see them come to Christ. We are God's representative here to proclaim the Gospel and bring those who aren't saved into the Kingdom. So, we're, we're here for God, we're here for us, we're here for others. And So, any church vision statement is probably going to include all those things, whether it's we're going to worship the Lord and, and walk with God and witness to the lost, or whether we're going to exalt our Savior, we're going to encourage the saints, we're going to evangelize the lost, something of that nature. We have chosen to say it this way. Rock Valley Bible Church, we exist to enjoy His grace and to extend His glory. To enjoy His grace just encompasses all of salvation, coming to know the grace of God in Christ Jesus and continuing on that with each other, continuing Sunday mornings just to enjoy the grace of God like we did today. The Gospel song. And then to extend that glory, to push out beyond our walls, to extend the glory of God Beyond with the gospel. That's our, that's our, our role in our existence. Existence is to find satisfaction and delight in God so much so that we enjoy His grace, then we go out and we share that and extend His glory as we proclaim His gospel and speak with others. And really, in many ways, it ought to be pretty natural for us. I mean, when you're a satisfied customer, it's easy to sell your product. Uh, like, like, for instance, I told you last week that, uh, we, we're replacing our roof and our neighbors are replacing our roof. I want you just to evaluate the different circumstances between our roof replacement and our neighbors who just last week had it, had it done. Um, our, our roof 
We got several quotes from several companies. We evaluated which one was the best. We decided to go with the ones who did it across the street. They seemed very professional, seemed to do a good job of that. And so the company came and did an excellent job. We were thoroughly delighted with everything they did. The workers worked hard. They were polite. When they, it was a two-day job. When they went home after the first day, they left no trace. They, they'd covered our plants. They had even put up boards along the side of our house so shingles came off the house and they wouldn't come back and slam into our house. They brought a trailer so they could put all the, the shingles into a trailer and then drive off and drive away. After the first day, you could not have told that we were having a roofing project done on our house. The only way you could tell is look up there on the roof and there were some shingles up there. Um, and we're very satisfied. Just everything he did, very professional. And in fact, we've even told other people how satisfied we are, what a great job they did. Okay, contrast that with my neighbors. Um, my neighbors saw that we were having our roof done and they said, oh, you're having your roof done, huh? He said, yeah. I said, we are too. And they looked at the roof about the same vintage, same age, and they need to get their roof done. And I said, oh, really? And who's doing it? Well, they had the quote in early spring. And uh, the problem was that they had no contact with a person who quoted the roof for a long time. And my neighbor was, was pretty frustrated with it. And, and after a few months of not hearing anything, they finally called them back. And I sensed that the phone conversation went something like this. Um, we have a contract here. You do a roof. Oh, who, who are you again? Oh, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Here it is. Yep, yep, yep. We've got it right here. We've just been really busy. We can't get there. So that's probably probably what was happening. And then uh, a, a little while later, it's probably after that phone call, several weeks later, then they got some shingles on the top of their house, which stayed there for a week. And then finally, the, the people came. The guys came. The, the roofers did. They weren't really hard workers. I mean, we watched them. They kind of slouches. <laughs> It just didn't really work too hard. And on top of that, the plants that they have, our, our neighbors, uh, like a horticulturist, really takes pride in her plants. They were kind of destroyed because it didn't protect them like our, our company did. And um, Okay, so I think about who's going to recommend the house, a roofer. If you talk to us, we're going to be all overflowing with praise with ours. You talk with our neighbors and they're not going to be so so happy about them. In fact, even I've taken the name down and says, I'm not going to get a roofer. I'm not going to recommend this company kind of put it back in my mind. But that's our vision, is to, to be satisfied customers. It's so delight in God and His grace that we can hardly contain ourselves in telling other people, enjoying His grace so we extend His glory. I do believe that's the pattern of the Bible. First, find your satisfaction with God and then tell that satisfaction with others. Now, it's not that everything goes well and perfectly and smoothly. I'm not preaching health, wealth, prosperity, like everything's wonderful. But, but here it is. Even in our trials, and even in our difficulties, we know that behind a frowning providence there comes a what? A smiling face. We know that. And so even through those times, we find that God is the one carrying us through those difficult times and we are contented in Him. We've discovered that Christ has cleansed our consciences from sins. We found peace of mind and trust in Him that even though the difficulties of life come, God can be entirely trustworthy to carry us out, carry us through these trials and difficulties. And we found such joy in Jesus, and we share that with every influence we have, whether it's our, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, wherever the Lord may take us. And I think that's in the Bible. Jeremiah talked about how he had fire in his bones. He just had to get it out. He had this message that God had given him, and he had to get it out. Peter and John, when they were arrested for preaching the Gospel, their testimony is this, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. They, they were threatened with, with punishment and flogging. Whipping. 
But they said, we can't stop. we got something in us. And we so love the grace of God, we need to get it out. Paul said, we believe, therefore we speak. It's the believing that impels us to speak. Peter said in his epistle, 1 Peter, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that we are everything of God, so that we may proclaim His excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. That is our vision is to so love the grace of God that we then extend His glory in telling of the grace of God to others. For my message this morning, you know, I, I want to just pull an obscure story in the Old Testament, one of my favorite stories in all the Bible, 2 Kings chapter 7. So you can take your Bibles, if you haven't already, and open up to 2 Kings chapter 7. And uh, this is just a, it's a great story that shows a great illustration here of, um, uh, of what it means to, to enjoy grace and extend glory. Here in 2 Kings 7, we find Israel in trouble. The Arameans have come upon them. They surrounded the city, cutting off all the supplies. The result, when they cut off all supplies, there's starvation happening in the city. Things are so bad that mothers were eating their children just to survive. A horrific scene inside the city. And then in the midst of this trouble, Elisha says in verse 1, Listen to the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow, about this time, a measure of fine flour will be sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. That's a shocking pronouncement. It would be like me saying, tomorrow, gas prices, a dollar a gallon, all across the nation. If I said that, what would you think? <laughs> like, you're crazy. And Elisha, you are crazy. What are you talking about that that a measure of fine flour sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate here? There's no way. That's not going to happen. And there's a reaction. Particularly, we have recorded for us the reaction of the royal official. Verse 2, the royal officer, on whose hand the king was leaning, answered the man of God and said, Behold, and I think it's skeptical, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? Right? If God could, could make windows in heaven and rain down barley and rain down flour, could that be? And then he said, Behold, Elisha said, You will see it of your own eyes, but you will not eat of it. It's a curse coming upon this man. You're going to see it, but you're not going to eat it. Tuck that in the back of your mind. You can, we'll come back to that later. Verse 3, the scene shifts from outside the city to inside the city. Now there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate. And they said to one another, Why do we sit here until we die? If we say, We will enter the city, then the famine is in the city and we will die there. And if we sit here, we die also. Now therefore, come and let us go over to the camp of the Arameans. If they spare us, we will live. And if they kill us, we will but die. Here are these four leprous men. Totally hopeless situation. Lepers are outcasts of society because they're contagious disease. They were kept outside the city gates. If they're going to be provided for, people need to come in and, and give them things. Things were so bad they were thinking about going in. But they knew of the, the famine in the land. They'd reached desperation. No food brought to them outside the gates. They were starving outside, probably even more so than the people were starving inside. And so they determined to place themselves at the mercy of the Arameans. Not a good idea. Not a good idea. I mean, the Arameans weren't interested in taking prisoners. They were wanting to conquer Samaria. And, and any time they surround a city and the city doesn't give up, 
it like just agitates the people that, oh, we've got to be out here in the scorching sun and just wait these people out. It was not making the, the attacking Aramean army very happy that Samaria was holding up and not, not surrendering. And so they're going to go out and place themselves in the mercy of these people who are getting agitated, agitated, agitated every day that they're not, that they're not giving up. In fact, to give you an illustration, when, when, when Rome surrounded Jerusalem in A.D. 70, and they're looking to sack the city. They surrounded it, starved it out exactly like what happened here. You can read Josephus, exactly the same kind of things. Starvation in there. People were pulling each other's hair, fighting in there, just looking for any kind of food. Sometimes people tried to escape. They were so mad at the people trying to escape that they took them and put them on crosses right up for everybody to see. So this man was trying to get out, but we're mad at you. We're going to crucify him. In fact, they had so many people they crucified who were trying to escape the city that they lacked wood for crosses to crucify all the people leaving. And that's probably similar to what's happening with the Arameans. They were angry, but as bad as the situation was the Arameans, it was possible death at their hands. It was certain death inside. And so they chose possible death. Verse 5, we see what they took place. They rose at twilight to go to the camp of the Arameans. And when they got to the outskirts of the camp, behold, there was no one there. Shock. They'd expected to be taken captive by, and taken to the commander. Said, what should I do with these men? He probably said, lop their heads off and they would be killed right there. Instead, they entered a ghost town. Nobody was there. Verse 6 explains what happened. For the Lord had caused the army of the Arameans to hear a sound of chariots and the sound of horses, even the sound of a great army. So they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. Therefore they arose and fled in the twilight, left their tents and their horses and their donkeys, even the camp, just as it was, and they fled for their life. In other words, here they were, the Arameans camped around them, and the sound comes about armies, and they thought, oh, we're going to be deluged. All around, they were so scared, they just fled. Now, this sound probably didn't come from anywhere. I think it's an angelic army. Remember back in chapter 6 of 2 Kings, when uh, the army had surrounded the city of Dothan, and uh, the servant to Elisha was all scared, and, God, and he, he prayed, Oh God, open his eyes, he might see. And his eyes were open to see an angelic, band of warriors there that were going to fight the battle for him. So here's a different city, but I would not be surprised if it was angelic warriors making the sound to scare these people away. And you just think about how many that could have been. It must have been a, an army loud to have caused them to fear so much. But So they took off. And in verse 8, then we see what the lepers did. When these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they entered one tent and ate and drank and carried from their silver and gold and clothes and, and went and hid them. And they returned also went to another tent and carried from there also and went and hid them. Think about what happened. Nobody's there. All the provisions are there. These guys are starving. First thing they do is they go in and they eat and drink. Right? Food scraps from the table. They went to the refrigerator right, and they pulled all that stuff out. And they just ate it and started eating it all up. There was no refrigerator, by the way, kids. That was for you. Started eating it up, and then they had all the gold and silver and the clothes, and they, they began to plunder, plunder the camp of that tent, and they took those away and they hid them, and they came back, and there was more, and so they took that and they hid it away. These people were enjoying the grace of God. They were headed for death, but they found newfound life. They were enjoying their newfound riches. Instead of death, they got abundant life all the food they could eat, all the drink they could drink, and all the provisions they could carry away. Just right then and there. But there was a problem. And here's the dilemma. Verse 9. 
They said to one another, we are not doing right. This is a day of good news, but we are keeping silent. If we wait until morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. This is the second part of a vision statement, right? They were enjoying His grace, but they were not doing well because they weren't extending His glory. It says they were not doing right. They were keeping silent. They said, this is a day of good news. We have no right to keep silent on this day. We need to go and we need to tell the king. It's the heart of the vision of us, the church, right? We enjoy the grace of God. Yes. And why not? I mean, our situation was just as hopeless as the lepers was. The Scripture tells us, Ephesians 2, that we are dead in our sins. That we are children of wrath. That means children who are going to expect the wrath of God without God and without hope in this world. And just as the lepers stumbled upon the camp of the Arameans, in many ways we stumbled upon the cross of Christ. It wasn't so much that we were looking for life. God just came and found us. And we discovered that Jesus died upon the cross for our sins. The wages of our sin is death. But instead, God gave us the gift of eternal life, dying in our place in exchange for us. And the blessings that we have in Jesus and the new creation are abundant. In fact, Paul even prayed the same prayer that Elisha prayed for his servant. He said, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation the knowledge of Him. I want you to really know the glories of the Gospel. I pray that, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what's the hope of your calling. What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? And what's the surpassing power of His grace toward us who believe? There's a, a hope there. right? The hope of the lepers is a hope for life. There were riches there in heaven that, that, that we receive our inheritance. And there are riches for the, the lepers that were there as well. And the surpassing greatness of the power of God that had taken the Arameans out. The surpassing of God's power, passing greatness of God's power is toward us as well. That's who we are. And today is a day of good news. We ought to be amazed by the grace of God in our life. He would save sinners like us. That's why we sing songs about the grace of God. That's why we hear the glories of the Gospel. That's why we should. But we are like the lepers in the Aramean camp. We ought to enjoy the food and the drink and the gold and the silver and the clothes. But to stay silent about that good news would be a sin. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all the nations. Get out and tell people. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. A city set up on a hill cannot be hidden. Notice anyone take a lamp and put it under a basket, but he puts on a lampstand. It gives light to all who are in the house. So Jesus says, let your light shine before men. Right? Extend His glory in such a way that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We have the light of the Gospel of Christ. And we ought to shine that light. Really, it's what we want. We want others to celebrate in our joy of what we know in Christ. So others join in then. We're extending the glory of God. Even as we speak the Word, we'll find out later that that is extending His glory as well, whether it's received or not. And the only way this happens is we open our mouths and tell others just like the lepers did here in verse 10. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, we've come to the camp of the Arameans and behold, there was no one there, nor the voice of man, only the horses tied and the donkeys tied and the tents just as they were. And the gatekeepers called and told it within the king's household. Now you'd think the king would receive this news with joy and enthusiasm. What? The Arameans are deserted? But he didn't receive it that way. He was skeptical. He said, there's no reason for them to flee. There's no reason for them to fear. 
we're holed up. Uh, why, why would we? Why would they run like that? You can't just go and plunder the riches like that. It's too easy. Maybe, maybe it's some trap. Is even what he's saying. In fact, that's what the king said. He thought it was a, a trap. Verse twelve. Then the king arose in the night when he heard the news and said to his servants, "I will tell you what the Arameans have done to us." Here he is, middle of the night, groggy, and he's saying, "I know what they've done." He was dead wrong, but here was his premonition. They know that we are hungry, therefore they have gone to the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying, when they come out of this city, we will capture them alive and get into the city. It's a trap. And some people think Christianity is a trap. Be sensitive to people outside who, who don't understand the glories of Jesus. Think, what, you just want your money? You just, we just want us in here so that we can have your money? You just want something else from us? What was it you really want? They might think it's a trap. But one of his servants is really good. He said, well, let's test it out. Let's check it out. Verse 13, Come and let us take five of the horses which remain, which are left in the city. Behold, they will be in any case like all the multitude of Israel who are left in it. And behold, they will be like the case of all of Israel who have already perished. So let us go send and see, hey, we're dying anyway. They kind of had the same logic that the... Uh, the lepers had, at least they're going to die anyway, so let's go. Verse 14, So therefore they took two chariots and horses, and the king sent the army after the Arameans and said, Go and see. Here the king investigated the matter. It's only reasonable. You didn't, wouldn't have expected the Arameans to flee and leave everything. It could have been a trap. The king was wise. But it's also with our faith. It is, it is okay. Be patient with people who are investigating. Be patient with people who are just thinking about it. I mean, think about hearing the message for the first time that, that just believe in Jesus and all your sins are wiped away. It's a bizarre message for some people. They really believe that? Investigate it. But listen, when we investigate, we'll find it to be true. Just as those who invested in the camp of the Aramean camp found it to be true. Verse 15. And they went after them to the Jordan, and behold, all the way was full of clothes and equipment which the Arameans had thrown away in their haste. I saw the trail on the way out. Then the messengers returned and told the king. So the people went out and plundered the camp of the Arameans. Then, okay, remember this from the first two verses, a measure of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel according to the word of the Lord. God's word is found to be true just like God's word is always found to be true. In fact, not only Elisha's prophecy of the food but also Elisha's prophecy of the official. Let's just close the story off in verse 17. And the king appointed the royal officer in whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate, but the people trample on him at the gate, right? Rushing out. Anytime anything's free, you know what happens, right? At Walmart on uh, the day, Black Friday, right? People just swarming out and swarming in. That's what's happening here. This is a, a trampled. He was trampled at the gate, verse 17 says. And just as the man of God had said who had spoke when the king came down to him, it happened just as the man of God had spoken to the king, saying, two measures of barley for a shekel and a measure of fine flour for a shekel will be sold tomorrow about this time at the gate of Samaria. Then the royal officer answered the man of God and said, Now behold, if the Lord should make the windows in heavens, could such a thing be? He said, Behold, you will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat of it. And so it happened to him. The people trampled on him at the gate and he died. There is a prophecy. You're going to see it but you're not going to partake of it. And let us be like the lepers who believed, went out, trusted, found the grace of God in their life, sought to extend the grace of God, and then found blessing the entire city of Samaria. 
Well, there's our vision, if you will. Just kind of cast in an Old Testament story. Let's now turn to our values. We have three values. These are three sub-points under the second one. These are core beliefs. These are things that are dear to our hearts. These are things that characterize us and, and drive us. Now, for the sake of continuity, I've just tried to find one passage of Scripture that includes these. Isaiah 55. It's not a, it's not a perfect text to include all these things. I'm kind of taking my ideas a little bit and putting them here, but at least it will be enough to just flow and see from Isaiah 55 and what's there. So take your Bibles and turn. Isaiah 55. We have three core values at Rock Valley Bible Church. Uh, first is this, we believe in the power of the Gospel. Romans 1.16 says that the Gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's through the message of the Gospel that people are transformed. They become new creatures. Where once they were dead spiritually, they become alive. Where they were blind, they, they see. Where they didn't understand, then they come to understand. Where once they were hostile to God, now they become a friend of God. And people are transformed, not because of something they do, not because of some moral resolve, or not because of their own resources, but people are transformed because of God's resource to us to save us. And here is the message this power. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Right? You can put, put us in this room and we sang, Holy God in love became perfect man to bear my blame. On the cross He bore my sin. By His love, by His grace, death, I live again. When we sing that, there's a power in that. It stirred us to pray. It stirred us to, to worship the Lord. But you put unbelievers here and they hear the same thing. And they'll go to sleep. They're not interested in it. They, they won't hear it. But, but see, we've had ears open and we have eyes to see. And for us, it's the power. For them, it's foolishness. So you say, what is the Gospel? What is this powerful thing that we have? You can say it different ways. You can say it like we sang it. You can say it with a meta-narrative of four different words. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Right? God created the world perfect and right. Men fell into sin. But Christ came to redeem the world out of that and soon it will be restored back to where it was in the garden. That's called the meta-narrative. Or you can just look on it individually. God, man, Christ response. God is a holy, perfect, eternal Creator. And we, man, are sinners. And we need Christ to, to bring us to God. And so our response is to turn from our sins and trust Christ. You can sing it. Like we did, you can say it like Paul said it, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Here's the Gospel, which you received and which you stand upon. He said that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and then He raised again the third day and then He appeared to all the apostles. That's the Gospel. And the power of the Gospel isn't merely for unbelievers, it's for believers as well. I've been studying recently the life of uh, Francis Schaeffer. Probably the last two or three weeks or so, Ivana, I've been listening to some lectures uh, from WorldwideClassroom.com from Covenant Seminary in St. Louis. Excellent lessons, lectures. And uh, one of the things they told us in 1952, when uh, Francis Schaeffer was going through a spiritual crisis in his life, he really saw little reality of biblical Christianity in his life and little reality of, of how the Bible speaks about a Christian's life in the life of the church as well. And so he, he said, is this really true? And, and for a season there, I'm guessing it was maybe four months or so, that he went back and he said, am I really a believer? And he went back to his agnosticism and began to really think through the, the claims of Christianity. He said, is it really true or, or, or is it not? And why is there such powerlessness in my life? And why, why is the church so powerless? 
And so after months of rethinking this, this is what he wrote in his book called, the, called True Spirituality. This is in the preface. He said, As I rethought my reasons for being a Christian, I saw again that there were totally sufficient reasons to know that the infinite personal God does exist and that Christianity is true. In going further, I saw something else which made a profound difference in my life. I searched through the Bible, what the Bible said concerning the reality as a Christian, and gradually I saw that the problem was that all the teaching I had received after I was a Christian, I had heard little about what the Bible says about the meaning of the finished work of Christ for our present lives. Let me read that sentence again. Gradually I saw the problem with all the teaching I received after I was a Christian is I heard little about what the Bible says about the meaning of the finished work of Christ for our present lives. He said, gradually the sun came out and the song came. In other words, it was the finished work of Christ that Francis Schaeffer really said, that's the key to the Christian life, if you will. That's the strength of it. That's the power. That's how I can live differently. Right? Just to reflect upon the Gospel again. To really realize the finished work of Christ doesn't just save us. It is what sustains us. It's what keeps us. It's what energizes us. And that is the Gospel. And there's, there's, there's a freeness to it. A freeness of offer that, that causes us to respond to God freely as well. In fact, let's look at Isaiah 55 here. It's going to pull out some verses. That look at how it speaks about the Gospel, particularly the freeness of it. It says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you have no money. Come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend your money on what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live and I'll make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercy shown to David. There it is. The freeness of the Gospel. It's coming without cost. The thirsty one here is the needy one who's in the dry and weary land and desperately needing water and the, the hungry one, right? Just longing for something to eat, looking for life and refreshment. And the Lord says, if you are thirsty, come. If you're hungry, just come. Come to me, I will feed you. So when Jesus was the bread of life, they just came to him and they were fed and satisfied. And it doesn't matter if you have money, just come. Well, you know what? It does matter. You, you should have no money. Verse, verse one, come everyone. You who have no money, come by and eat. That's, that's the ones who are so bankrupt in their life that they don't have anywhere else to look except to Jesus. It's a call to come and buy the good things of life. The food and the wine and the milk. Without costs. Without money. Our problem is that we spend our money for that which doesn't satisfy. We, we spend our money on earthly pleasures of life thinking that they can give us satisfaction. The only thing that can ever give us satisfaction is absolutely free. It comes without cost. And it must be free. Listen, you add works to the Gospel and you tear the whole structure down. Even one work like circumcision. Even one work like baptism. You take a work like that, you add it to the Gospel, the whole thing comes down because it is all grace. It's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. Here's the the free offer. And that's the thing that will stir us to love and good deeds. You get the sense of nothingness really coming here from Isaiah 55. You see how satisfying it is there in verse 2, right? Listen carefully and eat what's good. And delight yourself in abundance. There's abundance in Jesus Christ. We can be satisfied in Him. Abundance of forgiveness. Again, it comes in verse 6 and 7, right? Seek the Lord while He may be found. 
Call on Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him come and return to the Lord. And the wicked one and the unrighteous man who turns to the Lord, the Lord promises this, is that He will compassion on him and to our God and He will abundantly pardon. You come to God, He will abundantly pardon. He will, he will forgive graciously and abundantly and overflowingly. And many of us in the room have tasted of that. How free it is. How much the delight yourself in the abundance, right? Enjoying the grace of God. And that's one of the characteristics and the core values of Rock Valley Bible Church is we believe in the power of the Gospel. And you just like preach that. I trust your hearts were just, were just beating with happiness and joy of the, the freeness of what God has given to us. We believe the power of the Gospel. Therefore, as a church, we will keep the centrality of Christ and the cross in all things at all times forever. Lord willing. Secondly, we believe in the power of God. That is, we believe in the total supremacy of God over all things. He created the world. He sustains the world. He came to save the world. He will destroy the world. It's because the earth is the Lord's. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Psalm 24, verse 1. The world and all who dwell in it. We are the potter. He is the clay. We cannot answer back to Him. When you search through the Bible, you'll find statement after statement after statement after statement that speaks of the overriding supremacy and sovereignty of God over all the affairs of life. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. I am God, God says. There is no other. I am God. There's no one like Me. I declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that have not been done saying My purpose will be established. I will accomplish all My good pleasure. God is sovereign over history. History doesn't just happen by accident. God knows when and where each and every single person on the planet will live. Acts 17 says that. Unlike the idols of the land, the false gods and the false gods of the peoples, our God is in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. It's the Lord who reigns. He's more powerful than Behemoth, more powerful than Leviathan. He can thwart the plans of nations. He can smash the Tower of Babel. When the nations conspire against the Lord, He laughs at the people's plans. He considers them as less than a drop in the bucket, regarding them as just a speck of dust on the scale. He scoffs at them for thinking that they can successfully mount a rebellion against the Lord. God puts all the starvings in heaven. He calls them by name. Not one of them is missing, as Abraham Kuyper said. There's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. R.C. Sproul says there's no maverick molecule in the universe because God is supreme over all things and we believe that and we hold on to that. God has no need of a counselor, no need of us. He's not served by human hands as though He needed anything since He Himself is the one who gives life and breath to all things. He controls the weather. He controls and knows the intimate details of our lives. David said, Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, You know it all. The hairs of your head are numbered. The eyes of the Lord are in every place. They watch the evil. They watch the good in your life. And and, and these statements just abound. I've just given you a few of them in in the Bible. And it's interesting, when you search the Bible, there's nothing that ever limits the sovereign authority, dominion, majesty, supremacy of God. Everything is just pushing it up and up and up. and, And as much as we can imagine, that's how powerful and awesome God is. Right, when the whole universe, right, we point the Hubble telescope out in space and we get closer and closer and all we see is more and more and more stars. 
It's like the fringes of His ways, Job says. Such is the sovereign majesty of God. And so we believe the power of God. And that is a tremendous comfort to us. It is a comfort to our souls. We know that no temptation has overtaken us, such as coming to man, and God is able to provide a way of escape because He knows the temptation is coming and He can, he can withhold it. And so He's not going to let it come and destroy us. And we can trust in God because of His sovereign promise of protection upon our lives. We know the trials come upon our lives. They're not out of, out of control. He'll accomplish all His good pleasure. Even when there's a thorn in the flesh, which God can remove, He may not remove it for His glory. When our nation is facing some turmoil and trouble and elections are coming up and who's going to be our next president? We don't have to worry about that because God is the one who appoints the kings. God outlives every king. He buries all the kings. Our God is in control. We can rest in His working plan for His story. Now, there's some people, well-meaning, who will limit the sovereignty of God and they will limit it as it refers to our wills, our choices. They say, yes, God is sovereign over everything in the universe except for me. Like God can create all the stars. He can number them. He can do all this stuff. There's not a maverick molecule except for me and my will because I'm free to choose what I want to choose. So what many say, they're well-meaning. And I say, no, God is sovereign over your hearts. God is sovereign over your hearts. He moves our hearts to accomplish His will. Proverbs 21.1, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever He wishes. God is sovereign over Barack Obama. Choosing wherever He wishes to steer His heart, He will. That's what we saw last week, right? So we finished the exposition of Hebrews. Hebrews 13.21 God is working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ to Him be the glory forever and ever. God works in us to do what's pleasing in His sight. That's God working in our will. Why do you think even you pray for people to be converted? You're praying, God, I want you to exercise your sovereign will to impose upon their will and change their hearts and minds so they see the glories of Jesus and come to you. That's what you're praying. You believe that God is sovereign over the wills of people. And we believe in God's sovereign working in us because the only reason we believe is because God acted on our hearts to bring us to faith. When you're born the first time, you didn't have a choice in it. When you're born the second time, it's not a lot of choice of yours either. It says, John 1.12, But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. And He says, These were born, these are those who received Him, who were born of God, changed, but they believe in the Gospel. These are one born, not of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of the will of God. Says you're born again, it's because of the will of God. First Peter one, pray, blessed be the God and Father Lord Jesus Christ who caused us to be born again. God is the one who acts. God is sovereign over that. Jesus said, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from, where it's going. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. You don't know where it is, but it's the sovereign Spirit who dispenses it. It says in First Corinthians one verse thirty, it's by His doing that you're in Christ Jesus. We're in Christ Jesus because of what He did. Upon our lives, because He's sovereign over everything, including our hearts, our decisions. Now, how it happens, I don't know. It's a mystery. But I know this. It is not man's will and God's will fighting it out. It's man's will and God's will. We are within God's will as we work things out. Because of my sinfulness and my revolt against God, but God is still sovereign over my will. It's difficult to understand, but I think in part, Isaiah 55 is talking a little bit about it. He says, verse 8, My thoughts are not your thoughts, 
nor your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts and your thoughts. And we know more and more and more and more about how much higher the heavens are above the earth now than ever before. And God says, as high as that is, so high are your thoughts and my thoughts. So who are we to say back to the potter who made us, who told us that we are in His sovereign will and, and, that, and that He is the one who is sovereign over our hearts? Who are we to say, no, you're not God? Because His ways are so much higher than our ways. How can we possibly do that? But too often, here's what it is, people trust their own reasons. It doesn't make sense. I feel totally free. God can't be sovereign over me. And so they believe their own reason rather than trusting God's Word. They say, okay, if if God's sovereign will over me, then I'm just a puppet and therefore I'm not responsible. But God's Word says we're responsible. How that works? God's sovereignty, our responsibility, I don't know. And I feel pretty free, but the Bible says that God is the one who's sovereign exerting His will over us. But, but, but people conclude that if, the only way for me to be responsible for my sin is if I'm totally free apart from the will of God. If my will is here and God's will is healed, that's the only way that I can be free. It's the only way I can be held responsible for my sin. I say, no, God does it somehow. Here's our will. Here's God's will. And yet He still holds us responsible. The Bible speaks like that oftentimes. The Bible says that he, God even uses evil to accomplish His purposes. Right? Remember Ephesians, uh, Romans 8.28? God causes all things to happen for good to those who love God who are called according to His purpose. It is the causality that God is causing all things to work together for good to us who love God. If we've been called of Christ Jesus, we can trust and rest that all things around us are for good. Whether that's on a national level, whether it's on a family level, the struggles and trials, whether it's on an unemployment level, whether it's on a family difficulty, whether it's on a death in the family or an illness in the family, God's causing all those things for the good. We're saying it, right? You give and you take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's exactly from the book of Job. Job chapter 1. Yes, Satan was an intermediary in there, but it was God who took away and it was God who inflicted Job. That's what Job says. He says, shall we not accept good from God and and shall we only accept the good and not the ill? And it says he didn't sin with his lips. He didn't accuse God at all wrongly. It's God who brings and causes all things, even the evil things, to work together for the good. In fact, that's the story of Joseph. Joseph's brothers meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. In fact, even there was one point that though the brothers, yes, they sent their, their, their brother in slavery to Egypt, Joseph corrected them. He says, no, 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 no. It was not you who sent me, but it's God who sent me. You meant it for evil. That's your will. But God, over that, was meaning it for good. Regarding Pharaoh, God says, For this purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. In other words, God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh wouldn't let the people go, so that the plagues would happen, and so we could even talk about and know the plagues today. Because God is sovereign over the will of people. Regarding the crucifixion of Christ, God is sovereign over the evil plans of man. Acts 4, they said, Truly in the city against they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and all the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. The death of Jesus, no accident. God had predestined it was going to be Herod, and it was going to be Pontius Pilate, and it was going to be the Jews who hate him, it was going to be the, the Gentiles who hate him, and put him to death. You say, well, who killed Jesus? Well, Isaiah 53, verse 10 says that God did. The Lord was pleased to crush him that he might be a guilt offering. God was pleased to crush Jesus for a greater good, for his glory. 
Okay, so you start thinking about the implication of these things. You start trying to understand these things. It'll blow your mind away. You won't understand them. I remember hearing a man speaking about the sovereignty of God, the responsibility of man, trying to put them together. And the question was posed, how can a sovereign God, who is sovereign over all things, right? we believe in the power of God over all things, how can He then hold people responsible for their sins? And I'd always said this, when that question was asked to me, and here I am in the crowd thinking like, okay, this is, how can God hold us responsible for being sovereign over everything if, if He controls everything? And I always remember answering the question, I don't know. I don't know. But this man was very good. He said, it's not that you don't know, it's you cannot know. That helped me an immense deal because, because I don't have to try to figure it out. I can just trust that God is sovereign overall. How He's working in my heart, I don't know, but I know my sin well enough to know that He's got to pull me towards what's right. So the hymn writer says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Oh, take my heart and seal it, seal it for Thy courts above. We always need to be praying, God, help me keep my heart, keep my heart on the straight path. Move in me, work in me like Hebrews chapter 13, verse 21. We cannot understand them because our thoughts are on the earth. My thoughts are not your thoughts, verse 8. Nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So let's believe the power of God. This means that we're only saved by the sovereign pleasure of God. He moves in our hearts. So let's believe. We as a church, we believe. These are our three values, right? Believe in the power of the Gospel. We're going to keep Christ center in everything. We believe in the power of God. We're going to embrace the doctrines of grace. Thirdly, we believe in the power of the Word. Hebrews 4.12 says it very well. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There you see the Word of God. It's living and it's active. It's like this living sword. It's like a scalpel, like a surgeon. They cut between joints and marrow. Between soul and spirit, even if you can do that. Just right even in the deep, immaterial part of man, so the Word of God can go deep and penetrate. When the Word goes out, it's got this life of itself that, that penetrates in the heart of the people and accomplishes His purpose. In fact, that's what we get Isaiah 55. Look at 10 and 11. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will My Word which goes forth from My mouth. It will not return to be empty without accomplishing what I desire and without it succeeding the matter for which I sent it. So picture the rain. Do you remember what rain is? Okay. Clouds, okay, clouds, dark clouds that come, they rain upon the earth, and when the waters come down, it makes the plants grow green, makes the water grow. There's no rain, right? Just look at our lawn outside here. It's pretty brown. But think about it. each tiny little water molecule does its part in having the plants to grow and then providing food for us. And so also, there's the imagery that God's Word is just as powerful. That's just the same thing. As God's Word go out, it kind of sits there and it filtrates into our hearts and goes in the soil before it comes back to the Lord. And it accomplishes every purpose, every little verse, every little phrase, anything that's said as it goes out, it accomplishes its will. You say, what does the Word of God do? How powerful is it? Well, it changes people. Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. It changes the soul the law of God does. There are times the Word goes out and it helps sanctify God's people. Jesus said, Your Word is truth. Sanctify them in truth. 
The psalmist said, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping according to your word. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. There's something about the word of God in the heart that will help sanctify believers. The word guides us in wisdom. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 119, 105. I have more insight than all my teachers. Your testimonies are meditation. I understand more than the age because I observe your precepts. There's something about the Word of God when it comes. It gives us wisdom. It gives us guidance. The Word of God is powerful in battling temptation. Remember when Jesus was battled temptation by the devil in the wilderness. He used the Word of God to combat the devil. Three times, three temptations come. Each time he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. Man shall not live by bread alone. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You shall worship the Lord and serve Him only. Why is he quoting from Deuteronomy? I think he's in the wilderness meditating upon Moses' sermons in the wilderness. He's just thinking about where I am. This devil comes and he combats that temptation with the Word of God. The Word of God is sufficient for all ministerial training. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. We'll get to that in this fall. All Scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That the man of God, probably the pastor, may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The Word of God is sufficient to equip a pastor to do the work of reproving, exhorting, great patience and instruction. Now, definitely that's true for everyone then. But it's true even sufficient for ministerial training. We don't need all these other ministerial books. They may be helpful, but the Bible is sufficient. It's all we need. It's powerful for that. Again, I bring up the life of Francis Schaeffer. I've been thinking about his life a lot. He was converted through reading the Bible. He just, he just was reading the Bible. I forget how he got the Bible. Do you remember what I said? Okay, so he starts reading philosophy, starts thinking about that. So he starts, so he just opens the Bible. So I don't know what the Bible says. So he starts reading the Bible and gets converted. He knows no other Christian. In fact, I'm guessing he goes several months until he comes across that evangelistic tent crusade where he hears somebody preaching. He's like, oh, organ playing, singing, let's go in there. Here's an, I think he was an Italian man preaching the gospel simply and clearly. And he's like, whoa, I'd never seen this before. So he went forward. And he started involving. He went there the rest of the week and said, oh, there are other Christians? I didn't know there were other Christians. Such is the testimony of the power of the Word of God. I know another man I'm thinking about in my, my life, a friend who became a Christian reading the Bible, Trevella Library. Just reading the Bible, became a Christian. Says, what do I need to do now? And find a church and starts growing. I think about my own life, the power of the Word in my own life. I grew up in a church that saw the Bible as inspiring and not inspired. I don't think they'd say that, but that's really what practically they did. The Bible was inspiring, therefore they kind of looked at it as any other book. Or that's how it felt anyway. In fact, they even went up on the, the church website and uh, the sermon was about 12 minutes long last Sunday. And I don't remember anything that was said. They didn't, they didn't say anything. Because the Word of God... But I got involved in a church that believed the Bible is inspired. When you believe the Bible is inspired, you're going to proclaim it. Verse by verse, you're going to open it and you say, here it is. That's a direct result. Preaching, teaching ministry is a direct result of the view of the power of the Word. And I got exposed to this church as a pastor up front. He starts making sense of the things he's saying. And I said, wow, I need to study the Bible. I'm a pastor today because of the power of the Word of God in my life. Paul says this word needs to get out because it's powerful. How then will they call upon Him who they not believed? How will they believe in Him who they not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? And there we go. We've got to enjoy the grace of God, but we need to extend the glory of God by getting the Word of God out. Okay, so what? So we believe in the power of the Word. Well, 
What does that mean? It means we'll do everything we can as a church to cultivate Bible knowledge in our congregation, knowing that it's going to help. It starts with the pulpit. We're going to preach the Word of God expositionally. The diet here at Rock Valley Bible Church, we open up God's Word, put it before you as God intended, contrast with preaching topically, where you put your own ideas on the text. Okay, disclaimer here. <laughs> Have I been exposition or topic today? Hope you've been topical. Very topical. Taking, I even said that, right? Isaiah 55 kind of has the thoughts, but it's not. So what I do, I have these thoughts. I get in my mind. I said, okay, we believe, right, in the, in the power of the gospel and the power of the God and the power of the word. And we're, we're in bed Monday night. Remember that? And, and, and I'm like, head on a pillow, eyes closed. And I said, oh, Ivana, got it. Isaiah 55 would be the perfect text for Sunday because it's got those three things in it. And so I, I, I'm kind of waking up, starting talking about it. And the next morning she said, no, no. What did you say last night? What kind of verse did you, you talk about? But look what I did. I got my ideas. I just put them on them. Now they're true ideas, okay? I think they're helpful for us to, mo- to, to mobilize us and get us going. But what I did, I took those ideas. I put them on the text. That's not generally what we do, all right? Walt Kaiser says you can preach a sermon like that once a year and repent. I'll repent in about five minutes, okay? Normally, though, we're exposition, coming from the word expose. I want to get the message of Scripture and just let it come out. I want to, I want to expose it to you and say, here it is. Here, here's where it's going. That's why we preach verse by verse through the Bible. Because you got the message of Hebrew. What's the message of Hebrews? Jesus is better, so press on, right? You got that. That's what he's saying. In a little bit, we'll know what the message of 2 Timothy is. I kind of got it in my mind, but I got to figure out exactly how we're going to say it. So we get Timothy. And so, that's why I said that 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 is to a ministerial um, help and equipping. It's because it's written to a pastor, and he's called the man of God, and it's primarily written for a pastor's encouragement and help. Now, if it's, it's going to be able to train a pastor, it certainly can train everybody else. But that's, it flows from that. And you'll find that there's much more power, there's much more joy, there's much more life as we get behind the, the thrust of the Spirit of God in the Word of God to preach expositionally. Now, it doesn't have to be verse-by-verse minutia. Okay? There's no, sometimes, in fact, if you go too slow, you miss the message. So it, it can be even big, big books of the Bible. We preach one book and a message, all right? Just kind of go through the whole thing. But the aim is this, is to get the author's intent and then think about and apply it to our lives And I believe this. I believe that topical preaching will not be as effective as a consistent expositional diet. That's why we preach expositionally. It's the diet that's going to help you. It's the meat and potatoes rather than the candy all the time, which you're getting this morning. For your growth and edification, it's more profitable for us to learn the Bible as is written than it will come at full force in our lives. It's by design we go through books of the Bible and we go through books of the Bible because we believe fundamentally the power of the Word of God. You see, and you see it comes back there. It's by design. It's most profitable for you. It's most profitable for me as a pastor to counsel because I understand verses in context rather than taking them and ripping them out of context. Now there are benefits as well. Like week in, week out, what I'm trying to do is model for you the Scriptures. I want you to show you the central thoughts, how to ask the right sort of questions, how to get the author's original intent, how to apply it then. And then... Note or not, each week you're learning how to study the Bible, that you should go home and read your Bibles just like what's happening on Sunday morning. Just kind of read it and let it flow out of there. Well, we believe the power of the Word. We're going to encourage personal study of the Word. We're going to encourage memorization of the Word. We're going to encourage letting it have an effect upon your life. We're going to encourage you to read it 
alone. Read it with your families. Read it in the church. Make the Bible a supreme authority in your life. And trusting God as His Word gets in you will accomplish the will of God in your life. Verse 11, So will my Word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me void without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the matter for which it was sent. And that's what we believe. We believe the Word of God that goes into your hearts and minds is going to accomplish everything that it needs to accomplish. Alright? Review a little bit. Our vision and values. What's our vision again? We exist to enjoy His grace extend His glory. And our three values, we believe in the power of the gospel. We believe in the power of God. We believe in the power of the Word. Let's pray. Father, I pray that You would help us stay true to these things and give us joy. Thank You for the joy You've given us a body, the, the love that flows from each individual among us towards the others. Thank You for the power of the Gospel that is the whole reason we're here. May we, by Your grace, God, ever keep Christ center in our lives, the life of our church. May we always remember that we're sinners to the cross of Christ. We're not coming because we're good. May, may You keep us from arrogance and hypocrisy, but maybe those who confess our sins and look to Jesus. We thank You for Your power, which is far beyond even what we think. We know God, You are with us and among us, and You will be able to protect us and guide us and guard us. Thank You for Your grace which broke in on our lives, showed us Jesus, made us, transformed us from death to life. God would pray that the Word, as it goes forth, God would feed us and nourish our souls. I pray especially You'd help just even these next three weeks. I'll spend much of the time just going over Second Timothy and over Second Timothy and listening to dozens of sermons over these next couple weeks. On Second Timothy, I pray You'd stir my heart, God, so that I might stir the hearts of all of us to see how difficult the ministry is and how difficult life is as a Christian. Be ready to suffer, because that's who our leader did. Jesus suffered. May we suffer as well. May we fight the fight of faith. So help us, O Lord, in these things. Thank You for this wonderful time, this wonderful day. I would pray You'd bless and watch over this congregation in my absence. God, uh, to serve us and help us in all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.